Hello and welcome to the show, And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and uh, we have arrived. This is the uh, fourth and final segment, fourth and final part of our exploration of Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. Um, I recorded this with Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen. very grateful to him and his generosity, not only in his time, which was immense, but also, I mean, we have four hours of just gold, <laughs> but also um, his willingness to share his, um, uh, this music that you're listening to comes from his, his recording. So we're grateful to him for permission to do that. and he does give you a little bit of reprieve uh, in the way that he he changes the chord pos- uh, positions when they're when they're doubled um, mm-hmm. so you might only do four in one position four in another so you get a little bit of of a change to make it a little bit more flowing a little bit easier but it's still a big challenge and then that ends in a big flurry and that goes immediately to the catacombs um, right and this next one is actually the, ri- the original title is in Latin so again, we were talking about influences of cultures and languages. I forgot if Musrohi uses five or six languages titles to speak. But this is catacombe, sepulchrum romanum. So this is a Roman sepulchre, catacomb, which would have been, you know, there are a lot of catacombs in France and Italy. Um, right. I, I don't know if you've ever visited. I, I've got to see some of the catacombs when oh, I was... Wow. I can't remember if it was when we... Well, we went to, to Europe for, we used to go to Sweden every couple summers uh-huh. in the 80s, much cheaper to travel. Um, but then one one summer we went on a small tour. It was about three weeks, actually. 
but we got to see a number of cities only spend days. But I did get to see the catacombs, and I don't remember if it was in Rome or in Paris, and they were just amazing. You know, I'd read about them, I'd seen, and I was actually a little scared. I'm not claustrophobic per se, but yeah. when you're underground in tombs, you know, and you're seeing right. where people were buried, and they just little lights on the wall and everything's old and, and dusty and they're blocked. You know, it, it's, it was a little scary. Um, right. I was 12 it, at the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am not 12 and that would probably give me a few chills. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So th- this wow. is another, um, another vignette that is based on a, on an image that we have and it's of this, you know, watercolor, um, and it's really, it's impressionistic in a way. You know, you see sort of that light coming through. It's not as realist. Um, you, you, it leaves a lot to the imagination. And I think that's very uh, telling for this. I, he just really translated that uncertainty of the painting, of the imagery, of, you know, the story that surrounds the catacombs in this piece. You know, you've, you've got the... The tremolo opening octaves really um, well. Mm-hmm. Tremolo comes a little bit later, but it's just eerie. And the intervallic relationship has the, the jumps, you know, the diminished fifths, the random leaps. It's it's like death is very uncertain. Um, mm. And and I think all the character that that would surround that imagery uh, is really infused into music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do hear that you do hear. And, and it's, um, it's interesting as I listen to it, it's, it's almost, um, a lot of times when we think of death, it's almost like this doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. I don't get that exact feeling when I listen to this, it's, it's more, 
Um, I don't know if I would call it hopeful. <laughs> but, towards the end, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, towards the end. But but it is it, 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 it the darkness does come at the beginning, and then it does lighten it up, and it feels it feels inevitable and almost comfortable in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. He also does a lot with the light. What I would say the lighting effect. So when we talk about music, yes. we often use uh, words from from the visual arts. You know, we talk about color and harmony, for example. What does that come from? And when we say chromaticism, chroma, that comes from color as well. But he does a lot with the dynamics and the voicing and the shadings, you know, to try to give that uh, that imagery of, you know, echoing maybe in the category. Mm. You say something, yeah. travel. So the beginning of Fortissimo D, and that's with the fermata, and it's largo, it's a very slow, ponderous, and then you've got a G right below that. And uh, it's major third, so you're like, is this major? But it doesn't sound major. It's sort of eerie. You don't have any notes to fill in, so you have nothing to go by. There's no, there's no point of reference. So is it really uh. in G minor? Is it really in G major? You're not sure. Uh, and that's a piano. So fortissimo, all the way, and it dies down. I actually let it die down to basically where piano is, and then I play the piano. And then yeah. he writes a G an octave higher, and he puts a crescendo on the dotted uh, on the dotted half note. Which is impossible. This is what Liszt does. does in his sonata at the very end. He writes a crescendo on a single note, which you can't do on the piano. But, you know, the, the idea is, can you? Maybe you can do something physically with a gesture or mentally have that idea that it's growing, even though it's not. And that way, the note play next in that, that uh, progression or lineage. Um, it's very interesting that he would write something like that. And, and this is, you know, I'm trying to think when, when Liszt's Sonata was written. Uh, it might have been around this time, actually. Let's see, Bliss was born in 1811. So, yeah, it could have been. could have been yeah. around this. Maybe maybe a little bit before. Uh, because they died in similar years. You know, Liszt died in 1886. So, um, anyhow, he, he goes a lot through these different uh, dynamics. And he has uh, every almost every measure. I'm looking at this score right now. Uh, yeah, up to the first double bar line where there's rest, every measure has some indication of a, a dynamic under it. Uh, and so that's it's very interesting how particular he was. How wow, you know, all the he wanted he effect. wanted a, a specific effect to take place, and, and and this is exactly how he wanted it. Yeah, he really calculated that out, and and I think one of the best pianists that does this, these actually this movement is really tied in and and connected with the Kornmorpheus, but sure. I think Kletnyov does a, a wonderful job of really bringing that eerie side, but also showing I'm sorry, say say that say that one more time. Who is oh, it? Kletnyov. So Mikhail Kletnyov. It's actually spelled P L E T N E V Kletnev, but it's, it's pronounced Kletnyov. Okay. He does a phenomenal job of bringing out the characters in this. Um, and when I remember first hearing his recording, I thought, is he playing piano there? When the Cormortuous comes in with the tremolos. Uh, and just it, like the effects that he does with the pe pedaling is very important. Talk about in his techniques. And but we often overlook things like articulation and pedaling. Um, I was just talking with, with Jess the other, you know, Jess, right? yeah. also. Uh -huh. yeah. And, uh, and so, we always lament sort of what, what are things that are overlooked 
and teaching and pedaling was is one of those. Oh yes. Uh, and and I actually did for my master's degree, you know, we had different papers. I, I didn't have a thesis, but I did I did take a course in my major research uh, topic was pedaling, piano pedaling. And there's an excellent book by Joseph Horowitz, um, not not related to Vladimir Horowitz, but uh, he, oh, sorry, Joseph Banowitz. I'm thinking there's a Joseph Horowitz who's a writer, Joseph Banowitz, and he's a teacher in Texas, or I don't know if he's retired now, but he has a, a book entitled The Art of Pedaling. Um, quite yeah. a fascinating book, but but uh, this is to say that pedaling is very important because we don't have sustaining qualities for pianists like string instruments, wind instruments do. Once you play a note, that's it. You know, you can mm-hmm. uh, increase the volume, really. There are subtle ways when you look at overtones, um, but uh, you, the pedal is one of the, the most useful well, it, it's the hardest to show like it's the hardest to like you almost have to get the student down on their stomach and like you know it's very and difficult look, yeah. to do it right yeah it's very hard to teach pedaling um we also there are two different i don't i don't want to say schools of thought but types of pedaling and one was used a long time ago a little before Mussolini's time we call that direct pedaling that was more chopin or, or a little earlier uh and what we use today ubiquitously is the overlapping pedaling or syncopated pedaling uh, where mm-hmm. you, you play a note and you change right after you kind of minimize right. the leading of the note but that way they're connected uh, direct pedaling you end up getting sort of pickups uh, on the on the downbeats or the harmony changes but this piece i found when i played it i i really experimented a lot with pedaling not just full but we we say half pedaling or quarter pedaling just different gradations of how much I let the pedal off and how much I let certain uh, bass notes, let's say, ring a little bit longer. And I think you can do a lot with the overall sound shape that you want to create uh, at every moment. So that that's a very, it, it's an easy piece from the standpoint of the notes, but I think interpretively, this is a very difficult piece to pull off well. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and, and, I, yeah, pedaling. <laughs> Sorry, you, you've got me. You've got me like on the brain of pedaling, uh, and uh, thinking, thinking how I how I pedal and how you know I use it as a uh, uh, almost well, how uh, you perform and how you teach it too. How I perform, how I, when I play, my my it, I use it almost as a, a, a. I can't even think of the word. It, it's almost. Anyway, I'm actually going to skip through this part. I'm going to edit this part, that little oh, bit great. out. <laughs> no, but, um, I mean, th- this is good reflection, too. I mean, we've, we've talked about a lot of different, different pieces. I know in your teaching, you, know, you do consider pedaling. And I know certain things you've played, like the Mozart or whatever, um, what is the Rondo or whatever. That's something to, very t- difficult to pedal. It's very hard. Well, yeah. and you talk about like a, a, a one thing that that I, I remember um, when when we did go over that the that mm-hmm. the Mozart is you know the idea of having um, you know making sure as you playing a, as you're playing a whole note or as you're playing a longer note, making sure that if there's a reason that note is that length and uh-huh. and the rest of the the accompaniment around it needs to reflect that. So yeah. you could play something. Um, you know, forte, but by the end of that measure, if, if that note's a whole note, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you need to, you need to be able to, to bring the rest of the accompaniment down in order to reflect that it's still a forte. 
yeah. uh, almost like a magician. And, and I think about that, you know, I, 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 that's what I was thinking of as you're talking about these notes that were crescendoing on notes that can't be crescendoed on. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, um, uh, you know, how, how that would reflect the rest of the accompaniment surrounding it. Right. I mean, you know, whether that's have, either to get louder, to get more intense or to get softer. So that note sounds louder, you know? Yeah. So you bring up a lot of things. First and foremost is voicing. Uh, and that's going to yes. always be, uh, you know, in tandem with the, the pedaling. So they're, they affect each other. On some of these measures, you know, he marked, I mean, wendo, which that's going to naturally occur anyway. Crescendo is the difficult part. But when you have other inner voices working, like you said, you have to imagine... Um, what's important? You have to have the strata. You know, which, what is your priority? Maybe the melody, you know, maybe a bass, next. and then the accompaniment or the filler, the harmonic fillers next. And that all has to be in relation to what that that melody is that you want to bring out. And then, if you have a long note, like you said, that lasts the whole measure, it might start at forte, but by the end of the measure, it might be down to mezzo forte piano. So the following melodic note needs to take that into consideration. And right. the rest of the, the strata, the rest of the levels as well. So it's piano is very complex because of that, because of the multiple levels going on. All instruments have their, their challenges, but that's one that I feel pianists um, really have to deal and struggle with that, that most other instruments don't. I mean, you can play multiple notes on a guitar, a chord, uh, on a violin as well. I guess if you're talking about multiphonics, you can do that on, on flute and wind instruments, but it's, it's, it's not the same. So many things, uh, 10 fingers, and sometimes I've had chords that have more than two notes, so you have to figure out like two notes with the thumb. Um, yeah. And that's just one of our challenges, but it's it's a wonderful challenge. To have because it is. It, it, yeah. And when it's done properly, oh, it's yeah. just, just glorious. Yeah, exactly. And if you can have a good Peddling with that. That's why Horowitz was so well respected. People think of him just for his, well, non-musician, maybe, just his pyrotechnic. But actually, his very deft peddling uh, and the way he combines sounds, like if you listen to his Schubert Impromptu, the Opus 90, number three, B-flat major, which I've recorded and performed a lot. It's probably the piece I've performed the most in my life. And he has a number of recordings. One of them is from a Carnegie Hall concert, um, I think after like a 12-year hiatus. But uh, it's just, it's so beautiful and so uh, nuanced and subtle, the, the color changes and the voicings that he does. You know, I wouldn't play it like he does, but, but it's just magical. And oh, uh, that's, that's what makes it so special. The voicing and that incredible pedaling. That's so, great. Oh, yeah. that makes me want to go check it right. out right now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, listen to it. So we we've got so we go right into the cor, uh, the con mortuis. Yeah, con mortuis in lingua mortua. Now this is uh, Mussorgsky was obviously fluent in French and Russian. His his Latin apparently was not quite up to par. So the uh, the title is slightly wrong. I'm not a Latin. So this I looked up, but it should be cum mortuis. C u m m o r y s s con. Con is like uh, French for con con moto. Uh, or even Spanish, con este, con este. But uh, this would have been C-U-M, not C-O-M. Uh, but whatever, okay. just a small mistake there. Uh, these are the whitened skulls, basically. The light coming through the whitened skulls in the So uh, Hartman is basically standing with his architect friend, and 
signal A and E L, and light is coming through this, and that's represented by light. Of, um, what I was saying before, the impressionistic, coloristic thing is very high F sharp tremolo. Uh, I, I have heard some pianists do this configuration where it's very measured sixteenth notes. I think I alluded to this before, where yeah, you mentioned that in the last podcast. Yeah, and I I can't remember the pianist now that does that. Uh, there are a couple that I've heard, and I can't remember right now. But it's very effective. But it's written as a tremolo. And uh, what Pletnyov does in this is amazing how he kind of enters with that 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 light sort of emanates and then spreads over everyone. It's such a magical moment. Um, but basically, under that that shimmering atmosphere, shall we say? The promenade theme. This is where I was talking about before. We have that last, last structural promenade in the middle of the piece, and that's right. where still a, a viewer of the exhibition. Now, Mussorgsky starts to put the viewer into the vignettes themselves. So you become part of those whitened skulls, or the you know you're one of the dead walking amongst the, the skulls. And so that promenade theme enters in B minor, where it's also it's in the mind and it's in the low bass register and it just kind of barely enters. And then you realize, Oh yeah, this is, we're walking through, but wait a second. What is all this shimmering light around? Right. Are we part of this whole, whole charade, you know, or charade. Uh, it's very beautifully done. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and you, you, you did mention that. And that when I went back and listened to it again, I, I just thought that is just absolutely brilliant because it does, it, it brings you in and you become part of the art. You're not, you're not just, you're not watching, you're not listening. You're like part of the piece itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you start to see some of the other influences too in this piece. So the religious overtone, uh, really yeah. come in there in the beginning or towards the beginning, 11, measures 11, 12, uh, Mussorgsky introduces what you, one could hear as church bells, um, and this was suggested in the promenade, one of the earlier promenades, by these ringing chords in the upper register. Um, here, they're sort of like large gongs, as well. And you have to imagine that in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church would have had a strong influence in Russian culture. And you know, you have those couplets with the, the big bells and ringing over the countryside. Uh, he certainly would have put these in, and Later, they, they show up in the Great Gate, yeah, um, move, which is the last movement, these bells. Uh, so I think it's starting to really enter here in a conscious way, perhaps. Earlier in the promenade, it was in a subconscious, unconscious way. But now he's really starting to layer everything together, uh, slowly but surely. It's sort of like you don't realize what he's doing. He's crafting this whole thing, and you're being put into it, and he's starting to bring these influences from before and connect coming later and you're just caught up you're caught up in it now so. it, this is also i mean it's interesting because we're, we're in the catacombs the Cold is this also um i'm reminded that this is a piece about a person who has just recently passed away a <laughs> friend of his and we're talking a lot of death motifs here <laughs> oh yeah um, there's certainly a tie into that yeah i'm sure yeah yeah yeah, I'm sure he was just very effective. This this Con Mortuus, the the English translation with the dead in a dead language, even that's in like Latin. Oh wow, that's so true. Language. That's fascinating. Yeah, and here's his dead friend um, that they're honoring with this, and uh, 
there's some sort of light and there's hope. And it's like, you know, we're, we're still celebrating. It's like a celebration in a way of mm-hmm. uh, this brutal, you know, he had, a, he had a brain aneurysm. I think he was like 40 something years. He's young. Young guy, which, which, and and we'll get to this part, but but it is interesting that the last part of this is a gate. You know, we're talking yes, about the yeah. gate, and 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 we'll get we get into that. But I do find that that almost a continuation of that same motif of of this the moving through and into the next life. You know, yeah, the symbolism here is very powerful. I think, right. Yeah. So, um, before we we move into the Baba Yaga. Um, anything else you want to add about this little piece? No, I would just Not say that little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These two together kind of de- definitely check out a Pletnyov's recording. I just can't say enough about that's the part of that recording that really drew me to it and made me love it. Okay. Um, so. Right on. Well, we'll, we'll have to, uh, yeah, please go listen to it after yeah. you listen to, you know, after you listen to my it. version. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, it's I, I like good. my it, version too. Actually, it's my, very good. Yeah, thank you. I actually like my newer, um, in a way, my newer version better. And I'll I'll send you. I don't have a, a CD release of that because actually I had a couple mistakes that I didn't like in the live performance. <laughs> but I do have a DVD uh, performance of that. Um, okay. And it's it's not on YouTube or something, anything like that. But I, I can send you that to you. Oh, I'd love to see it. Sure. Now, and this is interesting because to me, because we, we've, it's like, um, it's gotten solemn <laughs> and then we have this amazing 
piece. So I, I want you to describe this next this next vignette. Sure. I think this is one of the first times we get real ferocity here. I mean, maybe we had a little bit with Nomis, but so far we've had like the the different characteristics, drudgery and, and sort of just plugging along your daily routine. And, and then we've had the children at play and the marketplace, the busyness, and we've had the very sadness of the, uh, of the core mortuous and happy and sad, it seems. And here we have ferocious. I mean, Baba Yaga, we don't know who this is. This is a very wicked witch. Uh, Of course, all cultures have sort of that witch motif and the wickedness and the good, you know, we have in in Dorothy with the wizard of Oz, wicked witch of the West and blah, blah, blah. So um, in this one, Baba Yaga is actually a figure in Russian literature. And she She's there in the in the fairy tales, you know, folklore to scare children. She basically rides around, not on a broom. She rides around on a mortar and pestle, so she can capture <laughs> children and grind their bones and eat them in her soup. I mean, you don't get any oh, more crazy no, and scary. That's pretty dark. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's that's dark. And so she she rides around on this hut. Apparently, her hut is supported on four chicken feet. And cats and human bones, which uh, are, and yeah, and she eats human bones, I should say, which she grinds up with her mortar and pestle, and that's what she uses to fly through the air. So, actually, Hartman designed a clock in the form of the Baba Yaga. It's a very ornate clock, and that is one of the images that we still have. Whether or not it was a direct influence on this piece, we don't know, but at least part of that folkloric tradition was, was upheld. And, right. Um, it uh, it actually that object, and now I'm reading some of my notes. It it maybe is Slavic or Victorian in a way. It, it might appear quite modern, or it would appear that way to modern eyes. Um, but it was really a, like a 14th century, and it was made mm. of bronze and enamel. So the um, the fairy tale with Baba Yaga, this right hand herp like fragment, yump, 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 is like the ballet of the Unhappy Fifth that we talked about. And the mortar and pestle, which she represents, uh, probably in measure 33. So let me get out my score here and go to measure three. Um, let's see here. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. So you have that that grinding thing in the left hand. And just that incessantness. Like we got in, in the bead woe, that incessant thing. But this is just repeating. And with that melody, kind of the shriekingness of that, that witch as she rides over the countryside, must, must be terrifying. Um, and yeah, it's just all <laughs> it's a, it, 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 it is like the wicked witch and Dorothy. That, yeah. that, that, you know that. <laughs> yeah, it has that. I mean, even the the way he writes the beginning uh, after you end. The conmortuous, it's it's that hopeful, you know, shimmering. It's D major. You have the entire keyboard, and you're like, oh, bing! You kind of have this bell-like thing to begin at the end with a fermata, and then you have two very big notes, bum bum, from an F sharp to a G, a major seventh leap, uh, which is a very dissonant leap, and right. going down into one of the lowest registers, the lowest register, piano, and uh, even in the Indications, he says, Allegro con brio with fire and feroce or feroce. This is ferocious. Uh, ferocious. And so it's bum bum. 
rest. And then you're like, whoa, what's going on? What happened? Like you're watching that horror movie. And it's like, don't go, don't open that door. There's something behind <laughs> out of the house, you know, and they open it and it's silent. Well, is this, is this, you know, I, I, sometimes when you're talking about art, it's, it's hard to, um, not, um, turn into, you know, uh, psychologist or something like that but do you think uh, it's possible he's using this piece using that particular piece of art i just find it fascinating where he puts it in the work and and um it's it's almost like he's using that as a medium to deal with his anger about this early death of his friend maybe i hadn't thought of that iron but it could be you know certainly from a structural point of view the uh, the last movement, the Great Gate, is one of the biggest, and this is and that's grandiose and right. triumphant. And I think to juxtapose this with you know to show the disparity between the two, this was probably the best place to put something like this, uh, where it's just so uh, not negative, but uh, yeah, I guess dark. It's it's very, it's it's the opposite of triumphant. <laughs> Yeah, it's the opposite of that. So I think in that way, structurally, it works. I also think that you've you've had so much buildup and so much angst and anxiety kind of building up too that this is a release. Right? Oh, that's and maybe, so true. That yeah, maybe sense. it's it's good to have that release after his his friend you know, dying and having those two very introspective and personal movements. And yet, then all of a sudden, like he just got to release that energy, and he used the the fairy tale, the folkloric, Abaya got to do that. Um, you know, bringing it again, bringing as many different things together. And, and it's interesting. And, it takes, it takes, it, you think about that as a child, you know, childish almost. It's, it's it, that just like, you know, we're talking about something pretty somber, pretty solemn. And mm-hmm. even not, even, even if it is lighter and then it just, you know, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. This is also a very difficult piece to, Play. I was just going to ask, this, this doesn't sound like an easy... <laughs> no, some of the jumps, when you get to the, the second, once the theme comes in of the wheeling, and then you have you have the left hand where it's jumping a lot, octaves, and the right hand's jumping sometimes in contrary motion, parallel motion, and so line those things up, very difficult. Uh, and then It's also hold, long. It's long. Yeah, so the stamina is another issue. And then you've got a whole passage of kind of octaves cascading downwards and getting a little lower each time. And then he goes right back up, and you have this alternating right hand, left hand. Uh, until you just kind of peter out a little bit, sort of like the lull before the storm comes in. And this middle section, again, this is sort of a ternary form, uh, with the, the andante mosso part. This is in... Um, measure 95 so so still some weird uh intervals that's uh a sharp e which is an augmented fourth or tritone and then it's still kind of weird but you're you're kind of in the limbo zone and that's similar to her theme um or, or some some things that come previously, but it's just a much more calming effect. And uh, and then you have these these uh, little outbursts in the second iteration. Of this so like in measure 
108. You have these like sparks of light coming. You know, maybe maybe if it's a magical thing, it's like a wand. Right. The, the sparks at the end of a wand if, if she's a magical witch, which she probably is. So, um, Fun. Yeah, and then, and then da-dum, it kind of ends and peers out against that. Pianissimo, diminuendo, and it's a tremolo with a fermata. And then you go right back to the original uh, version or original theme kind of. But in this case, you don't have pum pum. You just have one pum. And I don't know if he wants you to wait for the other one or not, but it doesn't come. And then bum bum, like oh, a little rested is... development there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So then he gets back into the same kind of theme, and it ends on this huge, uh, very difficult actually flourish uh, that leads up very triumphantly. So uh, into the upper registers with both hands, harmonic minor scale almost, and then leads to e
like uh, this, this key, you know, we have to keep in mind back then, and certainly even earlier in Haydn and Beethoven's time, keys had different meanings uh, because they didn't have equal temperament. So, I mean, Bach wrote mm-hmm. the Prelude and Fugue to kind of highlight the, the fact that you could have equal temperament and everything could sound good in different keys. But before that, uh, keys had meaning. So, for example, B major was a, a hunting key. A lot of pieces that are that are hunting songs are written that E flat was just a very good key for triumphal stuff because right. E flat is a natural um, pitch for horns. So right. When you think of the natural horn, you know, over the countryside, E flat, B flat, those are very good notes. And so, anytime you have uh, something that's princely or kingly, you know, they're often in the key of E flat. So uh, that's kind of another reason for choosing that particular key for the. It's called the Bogator Gate, or at Kiev, the ancient capital. This is uh, also in Russian. This original title, which I won't read anymore because my Russian is quite. I forgot some of the letters. Actually, it's embarrassing. I could read it fluently a hundred years ago, and now I cannot. We'll just call it the Gate of Kiev. The gate, so yeah, Great Gate of Kiev. So, um, yeah. So let's let's just skip to that. Yeah, that's just a. a I mean, and I. I one of the things I, that I appreciate about this, it is very triumphal. It is definitely the ending. And he uses the promenade. I mean, I hear motifs of the promenade going on through it. Yes. Yeah, he definitely brings in the promenade theme. And it's, it's in a very positive manner. You have, you have so many layers in this piece. First of all, it's a, a large piece. Um, and so he starts out with this, which is a very just open you know, fifth. We talk about the Russian singing over the countryside, like I mentioned at the beginning with the promenades. This is another very vocal uh, theme. It's it's amazing. Some of these other nationalistic pieces of other countries, they always sound so good to me. You know, Sometimes <laughs> right. I wish American composers could, could match that. Oh, I don't know if you've heard the Russian national anthem. Yes. You know, it's just so glorious. You know? It is. It is beautiful. Yeah. And so they, they have this, uh, this is kind of the glory of the Russian singing. And all that, that reminds Russian- me of uh, uh, Rachmaninoff and his, and his Vespers. And, yeah. uh, and people, which I love. I mean, just, that's some of my favorite music to, to listen to. Uh-huh. And he's, uh, and I remember they were talking about how, how the, uh, the basses go down to like a B below. I mean, it's so low. It's impossibly low. And he said something to the effect of, I believe in my, my Russian, uh, my Russian men can hit that note and they do. It's amazing. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard the Mongolian throat singers. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how low one can go, but Russia, they, they had a real focus on the lower singing. Like I was talking about with Mussorgsky's other, works um they're often dark they're it's often very, very manly and yeah yeah very just broad and so that's yes. what i feel the character of this is at the beginning da, 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 da. and then actually after this is reiterated a couple times it gets bigger and bigger and then later on it gets even bigger and starts to add, to add layers which we'll get into but he actually in measure um in measure 30 he introduces uh this Russian Orthodox Church hymn. I, I didn't know this or grow up this with this. Oh. I know this song. Um, maybe you've heard of it. It's called "As You Are Baptized in Christ," and that apparently was a 
you know, maybe a thing that in a lot of the Russian Orthodox churches. Uh, right. He kind of expands on that. I have in my uh, thesis, this is on page 80, it's figure 22, if you're following along, but uh, there's the just outline of the melody for it. And he uh, he emulates a simpler aspect chant, kind of taking away a lot of the melismatic features because in that in that tradition and even earlier like Gregorian chant, you'd have a lot of duh, you know, around one note. So he kind right. of shears it down or pairs it down to its elements. And that's what is, is presented here. So Wow. Bum, 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 that kind of thing. Um, it's really beautiful. And it, I love yeah. it because I didn't, I didn't realize that, that that was in there. And that is, that's cool. It, I do love that part. Cause it, 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 it sounds uh, religious in nature, you know? Yeah. And it's in a weird key. It's actually very hard to read this section. Uh, it's not so hard to play per se, but it's an A flat minor. And so you've got some, some double flats <laughs> some that you're re- re- reading. <laughs> yeah. And it, you also just finished this section at Forte. And then this enters a piano and it's sort of like um, innocent, you know, and it is called as you are baptized in Christ. So again, it's bringing that sort of the allusion to the, the innocent baby in the, mm-hmm. the manger kind of thing and the purity, the purity of the sound and it's open, very open sound, but uh, closed chords or close chords, but very pure sounding. And the progressions, again, it, it's more like Gregorian almost. It's not, uh, um, I don't know. It doesn't sound quite Germanic all the time. Just a lot of parallel things. Well, and if you, and, and, and the symbolism, again, I, I come back to is, is the, is the gate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, for Christianity, you know, the, the gate to Christ is baptism. That is that first, mm-hmm. you know, yes. initial yeah. thing. And, and when we die, you know, that entering the gates of heaven. I mean, I just see yeah. a lot of symbolism going on there, especially with, with those, with those Russian Orthodox hymns and those, that, that, uh, um, you know, as you say, the, those, those, uh, uh, not mon- uh, polyphonic kind of things going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, some of it is overt in the symbolism and some of it might not be, maybe more covert, but certainly right. Mussorgsky, although I wouldn't, say he was a, a very religious type um you know we don't read much about that in in his what what we do have of his life but uh he probably couldn't escape from that part of his culture you know that was just imbued in the, in the culture right so it's always going to um color what he thinks about it. it's always going to affect his his mindset um and this way he does it in such a, such a beautiful way so Anyway, after that little interlude, which does come back in another key, by the way, uh, and it comes back in uh, E flat minor, so we're A flat minor to E flat minor. But he first has this large, you know, da 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 da, da um, triumphal kind of almost like bells ringing, but just a, a large scalar passage with the great gate theme underneath, mm-hmm. so in, in the bass. Right. Uh, and it's just beautifully written. Uh, very now here's a place too where I can't remember in my recording if I added or changed some of the octaves or the direction of the octaves, but I mentioned Horowitz's recording uh, from Carnegie Hall, and he he did a lot of rewritings or trans translations, if you want, or transcriptions uh, in this piece. But here's one instance where he did change a lot. There is another version of Mussorgsky where he 
altered the, the direction of the scale or he had some jumps in there. I think um, Horowitz uses part of that. And then he start, he adds adds some things here and later on as well to kind of thicken the texture. But it okay. almost is a different piece when Horowitz plays it. And so when I oh. first recorded it, and you hear it in, in this recording, I don't quite follow uh, the score. I do add a few things myself as well. And when I re-recorded it and, and re-performed or performed it again, I took some of that out and tried to keep that character while playing more of the original um, the original. You know, version of the Mussorgsky wrote. So, yeah, this is this is an interesting place, and that's why I love looking at the manuscript because you see an artist at work, and you see his thought process in real time. Yeah. Uh, you see him cross something out or mark something out in, in pen. Sometimes it's colored, you know, like a blue pen, and then he'll re because they, they didn't have computers, you know, uh, <laughs> he'll he'll rewrite it or put or paste another piece of manuscript paper over it, and uh, and redo a section. It's pretty pretty interesting wow. and so some people want to revisit those sometimes you can't tell i mean it was really inked out black you can't tell what was written underneath but right sometimes but sometimes you can. you can take a guess yeah and and some people want to bring back those those sections or play it with the original original you know version or whatever how did um, so how did ravel compare and contrast like what ravel did with his orchestration on this piece <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I don't think they, uh, by this time, what Rimsky-Korsakov, he didn't really amend too much here. This this one f- follows most of the rules, you know, it does does pretty well. Right. But certainly how he chose to orchestrate it was, was very interesting. And I can't, you know, I have not studied the Ravel orchestration for a long time. But I don't remember which instruments play what, but there's such a variety here in character, in timbre, in register that he really uses the orchestra to, to the full effect and on the same uh, you know on the same idea Mussorgsky I think used the piano to its greatest or maximum effect well trying to use yeah. as many different um, possibilities and types of ways to play and uh, getting just that that ringing quality there are certain sections here where I just leave the pedal down for quite a while even though some of the harmonies change, but you know there's a difference between a harmony changing in the upper register because yes. the, uh, you don't have it. You can't hear that the human ear can human ear cannot hear the overtones above that. So there's not as much um, what is it called interference. So right. you can leave the pedal down, for example, in the upper register. Whereas if you do that in the lower register, you can't. That's why drums, bass drums, always sound so just boomy because of what we're actually hearing are all the overtones. Yeah. Um, and so in this piece, you can get away with that because the lower register or the chords, he either has a chord like in the middle of the piano, and then he uh-huh. only has one note in the bass, which is far removed. Um, and then you have a lot of stuff going on on top. So you can leave the pedal down for one, two, three measures at a time. And he, he knew the acoustic effect that would, would happen and uh, kind of wrote the texture to, to match that, to allow for that. So right. whether consciously or, or, un, or unconscious. Right. Uh, You're, he was, he was, he wanted a certain effect and, and, and that's how you, I mean, that's the only way you can achieve it on the piano. Yeah. Yeah. Because you need to have, there are some really long notes that just need to be held. Uh, and so, so we're almost at that point. If you go back to this, these scalar passages that ends in measure 63, measure 64, we get that as you are baptized in Christ again, 
but now it's it's moved up to E flat um, minor, and and so we're going up from A flat to even we're going up a fifth or down a fourth, and then that ends similarly, and you get these gongs or these bells. And what I like is he does different types of bells. So if you think of the the, the traditional, you know, Russian church, you can think right. of the Saint Basilica, um, or or even that's the one in Saint Petersburg. I forgot the full name, but with those Russian cupolas, the beautiful round um, tops with all the ornateness and all the beautiful colors. Uh, yes. And, and so you've got the big bells, very large bells, which are going to be low. And you've got the medium sized bells and you've got the higher bells and maybe the very high bells. And he incorporates all the different sizes of bells here. So you've oh. got this uh, starting in measure um what is this here? 70, 9, 10, uh, 80, like measure 81. Because boom, 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 boom. So that's setting the two large bells. Kind of, and then boom, 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 in the middle. That's maybe a smaller part, but it's it's triplets, so it's kind of moving you along. And then it gets into uh, groups of four. And those are the higher higher bells. Why you're still getting those boom, boom, boom yeah. as the pedal tones. Um, and so you have all these layers of bells. And then, just like you mentioned before, he inserts that that promenade theme in the top of the high bells. So the high bells, if you kind of split them into like a chord, three notes, and then repeats in two different registers, two, two different octaves, the top note of those three notes, in this case, an E-flat. Um, sorry, uh, uh, C, C, B flat, E flat, no, da, da, F, B flat, uh, yeah, da, G. So he's got those, that theme coming off there and it's marked forte, but then it, it builds, you know, and keeps growing. And actually the, in the piano score, you've, uh, you've got three staves for, uh, for a couple measures because you've got so many things going on and, um, so that builds to like a second. That's always climate. exciting to see when you're playing. <laughs> yeah, it's like Rachmaninoff when you have four stages, you know? right? <laughs> uh, and, the, and the famous prelude. But you you have all these buildups, and then in the first two instances, uh, like at the beginning of the piece, you kind of build up, and you get that that theme of the as you are baptized Christ. Then you have like another outburst, triumphant outburst. Then you have that theme again coming in as you are baptized in Christ. Then you have these bells start, the Russian bells. And then that really leads to another big uh, crash-bang moment. You know, you have this huge cascading scale, which goes from an A-flat. I think it's the highest A-flat in the piano. Uh, let me see. Yeah. And then all the way to the lowest C, basically wow. in the entire piano, uh, with this with this scale, A-flat scale coming down. And then you get the... Um, main great gate theme coming in, but in the manner of the bells, dun, 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 like that. And um, it's just so amazing. Now here's a section where in my recording, I do what's called a hemiola effect or, or just uh, you know, two verses three kind of thing. You, right. you start to, it, it is in three, dun, bum, 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 and then dun, 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 dun you kind of switch back and forth between the feeling of a, being in three, a meter of three and feeling a meter of two. So what I do is actually, I do two verses, three, like a group of two in the right. I forgot if it's in the right hand or left hand and the three in the other hand. 
yeah. um, to kind of get that syncopation thing. Yeah, that adds a little momentum, but I did that in this recording, I believe. I don't do that now. Uh, I do more what he wrote. So you get the effect of a group of three for a while and then groups of two. So dun, 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 dun. And this this is such an extended place, and then it, uh, you know, right around measure 136, it kind of gets to a static place, but there's still rumblings underneath, still building up. And right. then it goes into higher register and you're still building. I mean, the amount of buildup in this piece. Well, I was just going to say, playing this has got to be kind of a nightmare because, I mean, obviously a good composer knows how to build little breaths, you know, here and there. But mm-hmm. if you're just building and building and building, like you have to learn how to subtly not build so you can build to go somewhere with it. Yeah. Well, I think he has those little spots and interludes and this, lo- this longest uh, at the end, you know, uh, flourish or whatever, rush to the finish, race to the finish. Um, there are still moments built in where register changes and that hemiola effect, and he does come, bring it back to mezzo forte before the last big buildup, which is over the course of you know twenty or thirty measures or something. Mezzo forte crescendo for a while, uh, forte crescendo, and then it's poco a poco rallentando. So you're really uh, stretching this out, and this is over the entire span of the keyboard. You're just flat, uh, large chords and going to C flat major. So E flat and you get the flat six and, you know, Tchaikovsky did that kind of thing a lot. One flat six, which I love that progression. If right. Listen to his symphonies or, you know, even in the concerti and, uh, Mussorgsky does this too. So it's just a very powerful moment. And you think those are the biggest chords I'm looking at like measure one, uh, 156. And then still, and me- measure one, uh, let's see, 61, two, measures one, uh, 62, you've got grave, sempre, allargando, still broadening, and whole notes with a uh, an ornament or pickup. Uh, and so, so real quick, just so, just so for those, uh, the, cause they're for those non-musicians explain the, the, the Italian you just sure said. grave. I mean, grave, it's just a very, a very slow tempo. Um, we were basically at a menomosto or maestoso, which is majestic, uh, a little bit less motion, menomoso, there's less motion. Uh, and then we have this poco a poco, little by little, volentando, where you're stretching out, you're stretching, really stretching yeah. the notes, and, and then allargando, you know, really stretching, slowing down, sempre as always. So you've, you've really put on the brakes here, and this is the final, you know, I'm looking at the final 15 measures or whatever, and it's fortissimo, it's in common time, so we're we're at the most stable we can be. You know, this whole piece we've talked about the meters changing and the promenade right. and five four six four seven four added. Now all of a sudden, we're in four four. You know, this is uh, very stable harmonies. E flat major. It's just like, oh, it's so melodramatic in a way, but it's not cheesy. I, I no, feel no, that, it's not cheesy. It's yeah. You know what? I mean, it, this is a cheesy version of what I'm about to say is, is it reminds me a little bit at the end of uh, the John Williams score, the star Wars, you know, like it's got mm. this, this big triumphant slow, you know, this is important and we're going to stand here and enjoy this moment for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's kind of how it is. It's almost a Hollywood moment, not quite Disney moment, but yes. Uh, right. 
Star Warsy, and and but you know with this one, there are so many layers and things that have built up to. I guess Star Wars Two has quite a story behind it, but um, this one I think is is much deeper and right, much stronger and, and more powerful, and and so you're ending on these big chords. Da, 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 well, da, 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 you know what it is like. It is it is like I, I mentioned the Ode to Joy before, where you know you you come to the Ode to Joy at this point, but another another thing i think about is is for uh, again kind of non-musicians you know think about the lord of the rings those movies Mm -hmm. those three movies and at the end it felt like it ended for you know 45 minutes the ending was just like one ending then another ending then it just it kept ending ending but you had to realize you weren't ending a two and a half hour movie you were ending this nine hour epic saga yeah (laughs) you know And this is kind of the same feeling that you that once you've gone through this whole thing, this is this is the payoff that you've been kind of waiting for. Yeah, and it's funny we talk about the endings. I I happen to think people like Beethoven and Tchaikovsky just draw out the endings so long, sometimes way too long. <laughs> and there's a I don't know if you've ever heard of Dudley Moore. Have you seen yes. him? Yeah, he has a very funny video, and this is in the era of Victor Borga too. I mean, these were two of the early piano comedians, and. He does this thing where he's ending a Beethoven sonata, per se, a made-up one. And I think in C minor, he just goes back and for like one five 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 one 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 five five five. Like, oh my god, you know? And then goes to one one five five six da 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 five one. It's hilarious. So I think. Those composers generally they they maybe have too long. This I think right. is totally merited. I mean, it's yes. the build up, uh, the, the harmonic tension and the harmonic um, pacing has been very good, and we don't feel that it's you know unwarranted. So right, uh, but it's big. So he ends here, and and then you know a lot of these slight false endings, but then finally it's E flat for you know, four measures in a row, and a big tremolo, and and then a big octave at the end, and and a release. So. Uh, it is a real rush to play the uh, this certainly this movement certainly the end. Um, yeah, and and, and when you come off, good. we finish a work like this. Like you've you you played it, you know. I'm sure you always look back at things you could you want to do better. This mm-hmm. it, like at that point when you're in the 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 glow of the moment. I mean, how that's got to just be a rush. Like you, oh, like it is. Else. Yeah, I don't think non-musicians, you know, we could spend another podcast on psychology of performance and and the rush and the um, feelings that we get. Um, I've sometimes compared it to, or the nervousness that we have, you know, stage fright. We, we talk about that a lot. You know, everybody yeah. says that they have stage fright, and it's worse than others. Look at the greatest, like Horowitz. You know, he, he left the stage for 12 years because he was nervous about performing, and and that's when people were getting more critical and recordings were coming out. And it's very nerve wracking to perform today. And when you can get through something like that, that just adds to the, the euphoric nature. I mean, you, when I end this piece, first of all, I'm exhausted. Um, right. And I tell people too, how much of a physical exercise it is to play a recital. Usually after a recital, I drink about a liter of water. Um, that's the amount of, of water I've just lost in, in terms of energy. People don't energy. realize what an athlete you have to be to play uh, these kind of pieces. Yeah. I mean, you, you lose a lot just in the physical energy, but the emotional strain and psychological energy, uh, which you don't 
you just don't get in sports. I mean, I, I played competitive sports up to a pretty high level. You know, my, my father was very high. He was on the Swedish Olympic team, and he was one of the – in the 1960s, was, he didn't break or hold a world record, but he was very close, and he was one of the first 20 in the world to jump. He did high jump to jump, you know, seven feet. Um, and so we, we have that tradition and I know how important sports are and the, the psychology of them. And when you're gearing up for a game, you get nervous, you know, the butterflies mm-hmm. in the stomach, but once you start playing, you know, I played competitive tennis, table tennis, soccer, and you know, you're, you're fine. Yeah. Of course there's pressure and, but that heightened pressure actually helps you perform better. You can, you, know, you as you know, you can run faster when you're right. under that kind of pressure. Same thing with piano, by the way. If you can channel that sort of nervous energy into a positive way, you can do a lot of things. And I've done things in performance that uh, I've never done in practice. And there are a couple elements. One is your heart rate is faster. You just have more blood pumping. And uh, the other thing is when you're, you're nervous, your sense of time, you know, time we think of as a, as a very standardized or objective concept, and it's not actually. Uh, time is not objective. Our perception right. of time, rather, is, is not objective. So when you're playing and you mess up, uh, you know, you miss a note or something, and I, I've done this many times. That last 10 to, minutes. <laughs> yeah, you're scrambling for it. You're like, oh, my God, everybody's watching. The amount of things that go to your through your head at, at that speed, it's amazing. You think it lasts forever, and then you listen to the recording later, and you're like, oh, that was like a second and a half. Right. You know? And uh, it's still not good, and you can tell, but, but it is – really tough to get back on the, the concentration mobile. And uh, so, so all that said, when you put in all that work and that effort, then you've finished and culminated to something like this. It's really euphoric. I mean, it is, yeah. I, mean, I have such a high after concerts that uh, we talk about the artist's life too. And, and, you know, my schedule is just later than most. And of course people chat, Oh, well, you should go to you know, bed early and do this. It's like, well, how, how many concerts do you go to that are at 4 p.m.? You know, usually right. you go to a concert at 7, 8 p.m. Now, do you think the artist goes home like you do? No, they probably talk with a lot of fans or people after the concert. They're talking with That's stage right. managers. Then they might go eat because they're famished. So yep. when I play a concert even 7.30 or a lot of times at 8, you know, I don't eat dinner till 10 or 10.30. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'm, you know, exhausted after that, but I'm still on a, on a high. So – it's just a, a different lifestyle and right. uh, and your your brain chemistry is, is altered a lot. So anyway, back to how do I compare this to the average, you know, in everyday life? I think one of the only, it's not quite a fair comparison, but one of the only fields that can really compare to the nervousness and how that affects the body uh, and the euphoria as well is battle, you know, is a soldier. Yeah. Uh, when somebody goes to war, that kind of, extended uh nervousness and when it's really serious and yeah we're, we're not gonna if i mess up a note in a in a concert i'm not gonna die uh, that's that's the main difference but that feeling of being but the you know, concentration uh, level like the the level to, to to play a piece and to to keep a level of concentration for 30 plus minutes mm-hmm. is 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 remarkable because um I was, just, in fact, uh, another comparison. I was talking to my son. He he just looked up. He just he said, "Hey, did you know that master chess players, you yeah. know, burn six thousand calories out of you know on an average one match. chess match?" Yeah, yeah, which we can get makes it. sense. Yeah, I, I don't a little different nervousness with chess, we, which we can get into. But the the fact that music is 
um, is a field that moves, that is in time. It's dynamic. It's, yeah, it's dynamic. It's not like the visual arts where you can paint a wonderful painting and not paint for the rest of your life or even paint crap for the rest of your life and right. you can still be known as a great artist. Like that's a beautiful painting. It's a great painting. He was a great artist for that. You know, you can play a wonderful concert and then play 50 bad concerts and you're known as a bad pianist, yes. inconsistent pianist. And that kind of, we don't realize the psychological toll of being judged uh, is light. And I, and I wish we had that. This gets back to why I think music, one of the reasons why music is so important for the study of it for general citizenship. Uh, you know, we the, the things that we learn through music, we cannot uh, pick up through other things. I guess public speaking is is similar, but I don't think the rigors of public speaking are the same. I mean, you're using words. We know the words. You can make up words. It's very hard to just make up. You know, we're, we're not trying to improvise so much, which is perhaps something that's lacking. But it, it's really tough if you have a mind slip and uh, you're being you're just really being judged. And so, yes, it's not the same as, as being uh, literally killed or potentially shot at. But, but the, your reputation is, and in, in some traditions, that's almost the same. <laughs> yeah, the ego really takes a beating. And right. it's very hard for people to not only do, but to continually do. And that's why I've come around a lot in my own, um, uh, I guess, what am I trying to say? But the way I, I view other pianists or my judgment in the way I judge other pianists, uh, I feel, you know, boy, they've, they've gotten up there and, and they've performed this many times and it's every time it's hard and it's a struggle. And so mm-hmm. kudos to them for at least that part of it. Um, then we can talk about other things. And I have to add one other thing about a, a, a pianist specifically, because this is another thing most people don't really get mm-hmm. is, is, you know, if, if you play the violin, for example, um, obviously there's differences with weather and conditions, but you're playing the same violin every single time. Uh-huh. When you do it, when you play a, a, a concert, you're playing a different piano as a pianist, you're playing a different piano every time it's set up uh-huh. different. It sounds different. It's in a different hall. I mean, it uh-huh. is, everything is like a new experience. Yeah. That's a, a big part of performing too. And it is at least in piano circles, something we train with right. um, in others uh, with other musicians, I think it's something that's again not intentionally overlooked. It's just not part of their what they worry about. You know, of course, when I played violin too, and I played for twenty years, I occasionally played on my friend's violin or my stand partner. We'd switch violins a little bit. Uh, but you wouldn't but play a performance. <laughs> probably not. No, I, I would. I'd use my violin. Um, hopefully, you could get you would be good enough and comfortable enough to sort of switch. And also with the piano, with these big artists, you know, hopefully they're playing in nice halls with very good instruments so that right. the instruments are fairly uh, you know, homogeneous. Uniform. So they're, they're more uniform. Yeah. And that's what you get. Even with all the, you know, let's say the top 10 brands, they're all going to be f- fantastic instruments. Um, but, you know, I don't have a, a, a big, as big a career as someone like Zimmerman. So I can't be as picky and choosy. And I've played on just some. Um, what we call PSOs, not POS, PSO, piano-shaped object. I mean, they're right. just, you know, and, and funny enough, one of the stories that I have, actually I have another story from one from my professor, but um, when we talk about like playing in the trenches, I played at a retirement home. It was with a group, uh, friend, friends of mine, they were doing a, a fundraising event. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be part of that fundraising event. I'll, I'll play something and whatever money we raised went to, towards this this thing. 
and it was at a retirement home and you know a, a maybe a poor one but the piano there it was an upright an old upright and it was just against the wall and i was like right. well, nobody can see it there can't we move it well can't move it because it was so rickety you know the wheels were <laughs> if you move that thing broke so okay we'll leave it in the corner Fall so apart. how about how let's listen to the piano well some of the keys were broken. so some of the white keys were missing that uh, it was an old piano so it had ivory tops um, right <laughs> and it was missing that ivory piece on top so it was just wood you know, a little yeah. bit you know like one millimeter be- below the others and then some of the black keys also were missing so you can't <laughs> play the black keys because they're at the same <laughs> level of the white keys You'd have to like stick your finger in. So a couple black keys were broken. One or two white keys were missing and or different. And then piano was way out of tune, way out of tune. And some strings were broken and the pedal was broken. <laughs> and I mean, you can't play an, a worse instrument than that. But right. I played two two or three pieces. And one of those pieces was um, uh, Screw Up in Etude, which has a lot of black notes in it. Wow. And so, you know, I, I, I managed, I kind of made it as good as I could and I guess produce as much sound as I could from that vantage point. So the people way in the back of the, it was just in the, the reception hall downstairs so that they could hear. And um, I thought, you know, it was crap, but they, they all loved it. And then there's another couple who played in that uh, concert as well. The, the wife played the piano. She was a music director at a church. You know, she's an amateur musician and her husband was also an amateur kind of uh, flutist. Well, I should say she had training as a musician. I mean, she did organ and right. piano and other things and, and directed musical, directed choirs, but sort of a multi-talented, you know, it wasn't like she went for a piano performance degree. Uh, so she could play piano and he could play flute. And she had a heck of a time and told me later, like, I had a heck of a time controlling that piano and playing anything on it. It was so crappy. And so after first hearing me, I think she probably thought, oh, he's, he's good. You know, he can play. And then after playing the piano herself, he realized how good I was because of right. with the piano. And that turned, excuse me, sorry, that turned into a long standing relationship with me and, and the church where she was a music director because they invited me for uh, multiple concerts. I think over the course of my time in Montreal, I played eight or nine concerts there, sometimes solo, sometimes with my duo partner, partner violinist, once or twice, with, uh, I think once with my trio and then once with uh, Jess with my piano duo partner. So, I mean, that turned into a, a wonderful affair, having played on that horrible piano. So oh, this is to go I, back to your, your original idea that, yeah, we've got to adapt and play whatever yeah. we can and keep that music as our as our goal and keep that in our ear when we're playing whatever instrument we're playing. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, no matter how good or bad the piano is, no matter how, you know, how good or bad you play, because of nature, the nature of music, it, it's never perfect. It's it's it, mm-hmm. it's a it's the striving for perfection that is almost gives meaning to what we do as musicians. You know. Yeah, that's important too. Again, I'm going to take that point and say another reason to study music, uh, become a good citizen, is the the idea of striving towards something. I mean, how many of us lament our kids that oh that. Our kids don't work as hard as we did. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Every generation says that. And they don't know the meaning of hard work and, and fulfillment in the end. I mean, that is the story of learning a piano. It's, yeah. uh, it's a long-term goal. And it takes many years to perfect something. You cannot just take a few online lessons. And I have adults that, you know, they do that. And that's why the online lessons are so popular. It's like, 
well, I just, I just want to learn how to play this one piece, you know, the Beatles, this Beatles song. And then right. that's all I want. And just tell me how to play it. Like, well, okay. I mean, I can I just play these chords, but how do you, well, I want to play it better. Well, okay. That takes a lot of work and a lot of training and it's not right. simple. And that takes years of practice and honing different techniques and skills, you know, um, just as it would in many other fields, but in music, you see that struggle and you have to deal with it on a weekly, on a monthly, on a yearly basis. Um, well, I think it was, important. I think it was Horowitz. I, I, I may be messing up the quote, but I think somebody said something to the lines of, you know, when, um, how, uh, how often do you practice or, or, or what happens when you don't practice? And, and his quote was something to the effect of, well, after one day of not practicing, I notice after a week, my wife notices and after a month, the world notices. Yeah. I think it was him or, or even, or Paderewski or something. It's like right. one, after one day I notice two days, the critic critics notice and three days, the public. Right. So, yeah. You know, and it is, but it is true. It is that way. It is, it yeah. is a, an art that is, that you can, I mean, I, you can, you can get it, you know, it is like riding a bike, but at the same time, like to keep that kind of, it is like being an athlete, a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a very focused athlete that, that, you, you know, you're just, you, you have got to stay on the ball. You can't get fat and happy. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a nice thing too, is that it's the longest kind of career you can have. So in terms of the athletic approach, it's a very physical thing. Yeah, right. You know, you're, you really are using your whole body and, if you play correctly, you're using your lower body, support, upper body, and, and larger motions. We talk about that a lot. It's not just about the finger. The finger is the last thing the, the audience sees. So they always, oh, your fingers are so fast and strong. And yeah, they're stronger because I've supported them with all the rest of my body. Right. And um, <laughs> you wouldn't have an, a, an elite athlete and say, okay, take, you know, take a couple weeks off before this big game. No, of course mm. not. You're going to. No practice and you're going to keep that body in shape and hone everything you can. Um, yep. And then you, you can't just be like, well, I, I did that really good game, you know, last year. So I, this year I don't really have to practice hard. You're not <laughs> what, be what have you done for me lately, baby? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to be good. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of it. And the other, uh, sorry, go ahead because no, I no, go ahead. reminded yeah. of something and now I can't No, but I, I'm, what was I going to say? You said something else that sparked an idea, but it will come to me later. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did want to just, uh, um, I, what I was going to say is, is, is I've really appreciated you being our tour guide, um, through this, this piece of work. It has been just really exciting for me to, to get to know it a lot better. Um, I think, and to introduce it hopefully to, to lots more people that will hear this recording and hear, um, your passion for it, um, and, and have a desire to listen to it. For those who play, maybe to, to, to sit down and, and learn a little bit of it, but mm-hmm. but um, just appreciate what the, the the thought. And I think that's one thing. Like we talk about layman, you know, people who 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 don't understand like the the sincere thought and care that goes into writing, composing, um, uh, playing a a work like this is just incredible. And and I appreciate the amount of detail that you've gone into into oh, discussing sure. that with us to these last this series yeah oh it's been a great pleasure for me it's actually enabled me to uh brush up on some of my old uh on my thesis and some of the old stuff that i'd written about and even think about it in a new way and and tie it into so many other ideas that we've uh, touched on it's 
it's really been a nice journey. So I hope we do more of this stuff in the future. Oh, I, I'm thrilled. I'm, yeah, twist my rubber arm, Elias. I'm game. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, awesome, before, we, before we sign off, is there anything that you'd like to add? Anything, any final notes that you'd like to add about this or anything we've discussed? No, I mean, I just, I, this has been so much fun to go through and, and uh, I just get excited talking about this, this piece and all the other topics we have. You know, we're, we're both musicians and we're basically, um, we're emissaries kind of for what we see are such important attributes of being human. And I think music is one of those highest attributes and one of the things that brings out the best in us. Uh, and I think it merits serious study like we've done. So I hope people musicians and non-musicians are listening to these, this series of podcasts and getting a lot out of it and, and learning something about themselves through the medium of music and through this particular piece. Oh, well said. Beautiful. I, I appreciate that. This is um, Mike Levitt. I'm with Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen. This has been End of Love Remains. You can find out more about Elias at uh, www.eapedersen.com. And as always, you can check out the podcast here at www.andifloveremains.com. Thanks for joining us on our journey and we'll see you next time. <laughs>